Hello, and thank you for joining our web series presentation sponsored by Robard Corporation. Today, Dr. Angela Golden will be talking about talking to patients about obesity, opening that conversation. Angela Golden is a current fellow and past president of the American Association of Nurse Practitioners. Dr. Golden has her own practice, NP From Home, LLC. The practice provides clinical services in both primary care and an, an obesity subspecialty. Dr. Golden has experience in the development of patient education materials, research, and peer-reviewed articles on obesity. She presents nationally and internationally with an emphasis on health policy, leadership, and clinical care. We're very happy to have her with us today, and we know everyone's excited to get started. So without further delay, please welcome Dr. Angela Golden. Thank you very much. I'm very excited to be here and get to be a part of this series on working with patients with obesity. This is one of my favorite talks to give to my primary care colleagues because I think that those of us who do have a specialty working with patients with obesity really have a responsibility to help those in primary care understand this. So that's really one of my primary outcomes for all of you today is to really identify what is it that we're learning about how providers need to relate the conversation around obesity. Make sure that we understand weight bias, how it affects the conversation, and also how it affects us, because the research is showing that as healthcare providers, even as specialists, healthcare providers have some weight bias. And then recognize some of the current practices and resources, including staff education, office environment, and equipment, so that when the person comes into the office, it's an environment that will help improve the conversation. So the research, one of the research articles that has come out most recently is the ACTION study. The ACTION study had 3,000 patients with obesity, 600, over 600 healthcare providers, and included a segment of 150 employers. And those three cohorts were asked very similar questions so that we could start to get a better look at how the totality of where obesity care and how it's paid for is looked at. But I think there are some interesting data points out of the million in here that are worth us looking at today as part of the research. And that is that 65% of patients understood and agreed that obesity is a disease. However, there was a real divergence here because 82% of them said it was completely their responsibility to treat it. I don't think we see anybody with any other chronic disease that the patient feels they have an 80, the 82% of patients feel they have a complete responsibility to treat the disease. And I don't think there's a chronic disease you can name that patients have that percentage. So there was a divergence there of, yes, it's a disease. Well, maybe not really because I'm responsible for treating it all. So, but then we go over and we look at the healthcare provider side and the big orange circle is all of the patients that were in the study, 71% of them reported having had a conversation in the past five years. Well, I remember a conversation with a healthcare provider who was a cardiologist, and as he was leaving the room, his hand was on the door, and he turned back and looked at me and said, by the way, you need to eat less and start exercising. 
my BMI was 34.9. I think I was pretty clear that I had a problem, but I don't really think I would have considered that a conversation about my problem. Fortunately, I did find a provider who was able to help me, and I'm in maintenance now. So one of my disclosures should always be that this is my disease, and it's my family's disease. So I'm pretty passionate about it. So let's go back to what else happened. 55% of the patients received a diagnosis. Think about that for a minute. If you had a diabetic in your office, Would 55% diagnosis of diabetes be acceptable in your practice? Mm, Probably not. So this is a point that we really have to get better at because, after all, how are you ever going to have the conversation if you don't make the diagnosis? But this is the data point that I think had one of the biggest impacts for me, and that was that of the patients with obesity who had had a conversation with their HCP Only 24% had a follow-up scheduled, 24%. So that's not even 24% of the whole 100%, 24%. We have to do a better job. We have to do a better job as healthcare providers, and we have to do a better job at helping our primary care colleagues truly understand how to have this conversation with patients. So I, another point from this study, the top two reasons that patients with obesity did not seek health care are not on this list. The top two were, I believe it is my own responsibility, which we already talked about, and I already know what to do. But I put these two points on here because of the divergence with what the healthcare providers said. The lowest two reasons for patients Were they not feel motivated or they were embarrassed to bring it up? The number one reason that healthcare providers didn't bring it up, they thought the patients would be embarrassed. Patients clearly did not see that as a reason to not have that conversation. So again, we have an opportunity here for education. That's what all of these data points are giving us, an opportunity to help with education. I'm going to go on to the Obesity Action Coalition, which is an organization for patients, and the Rudd Center, which does a tremendous amount of weight bias study and looking at how it affects patients with obesity. So let's make sure that we're all talking about the words the same way. Stigma is something that undermines the aspects in a healthcare setting with health-seeking behaviors. So it's going to contribute to obesity, to metabolic disease, to psychological disorders, and ultimately even to mortality. So we have to understand that around bias is stigma, and stigma itself has a significant impact on our patients and whether or not they even try to access care. When we get weight bias, it's just a bias against those of us who carry extra weight. But it's based on false assumptions about the causes of obesity. When you ask most Americans, even healthcare providers, they all think that it's calories in and calories out. That's an old process. We know today, and all of you on the call, I'm sure, are well aware that there is significant pathology 
of obesity. The Endocrine Society, ACE, Obesity Medicine Association are all very clear in trying to move forward that message about the pathophysiology. If people understand it as a disease, then some of these false assumptions go away and we start to lose some of the bias. But there's explicit and intentional bias that was just seen recently in social media where a lady who has obesity videotaped the way people looked at her, the way they responded, just walking down the street. And you could clearly see the bias on people's faces. But there's also implicit and unintentional, and that's where the majority of healthcare workers come in. There is a bias implicit test that I would encourage anybody to take so that you can find out where your biases are, because most of us in healthcare do have a bias. It's unintentional, but it's there. And the Obesity Action Coalition ties it all together by saying obesity stigma is a major issue, and it is the last socially acceptable form of discrimination in our society. So what does it impact? It impacts clinically, but it also limits reimbursement. And I doubt there's anybody on the call that doesn't understand that. Some of us have a little trouble billing, but almost all of us have a difficult time with patients being able to get the medication that might be appropriate for them. Many, many insurers do not cover anti-obesity medications. And then we've got Medicare that won't cover any of them. So we've really got a big problem here, and it is from a weight bias and stigma perspective. But from a patient perspective, it can increase their morbidity and mortality by keeping them from seeking health care. The research clearly shows that they don't get their preventative health care. So their cancers are found three and four years beyond their paired their paired um, groups when you look at that research. So how can you and I make that change? Well, the first thing is the word obese should be removed from the dictionary and our language. And the reason for that is that we need to have people first language. We don't say that a patient is an endometrial cancer patient. We say the patient has endometrial cancer. So we need to transition very clearly every single one of us. Because if we don't use people first language, we're labeling. And labeling is indeed a form of bias and discrimination. More about language, and this comes straight from the Stop Obesity Alliance, which is a wonderful research if you've not, or wonderful resource if you've not looked into it. But one of the things that they looked at was what do patients, what words do patients want to hear? And Primarily, you see on the left-hand side the words that patients were more comfortable with, eating habits, physical activity, diet and exercise are four-letter words to them, obeses, fat is. So shifting our language so that patients don't feel that we are being biased against them. But this, oh, I'm sorry, but the stop, the suggestions from the Stop Obesity Alliance they have two suggested ways of starting the conversation. And I'll tell you that I'm a little, my own personal opinion is a little against this, but this is from their research of what patients would like to hear. 
Would it be okay today if we discussed your weight? I like the first part of the next statement. Our measurements indicate that you are carrying excess weight. This can be unhealthy for you and strain your body. Now, if someone came into your office with a hemoglobin A1C of 14.2, you wouldn't ask their permission to talk about their diabetes. If someone came in to, with their blood pressure of 180 over 100, we wouldn't ask permission to talk about hypertension. We'd start the conversation. That's my problem with this. I understand the bias and stigma that most of these patients have felt from many, many healthcare providers. So I do understand the reason that asking is important, but I think we need to do it in a way that we try to prevent them from saying, I don't want to talk about it because we, we really can't not talk about it. Sorry for the double negative, but we really can't. We're doing a disservice to 66% of America if we do not bring this up and start to talk about the science of the disease and that there is treatment available. So let's look at what current practice looks like right now. Look at the, the resources for providing obesity care. And let's start with the environment. When someone comes into your office, is it safe for them, accessible, accommodating, comfortable, welcoming, and above all else, non-shaming? And as we look at some of these items, I want you to think about this question. Is your waiting room a welcoming place or an obstacle course? Do patients feel self-conscious, anxious, and stigmatized? So let's look at some of the ways that you can prevent that. By using a great patient-centered care, we can do that. But we can only do that if we understand what patient-centered care looks like for patients. So in the exam room, some items to consider are extra-large patient counts. Whatever the restroom facilities are, be sure that they have a split toilet seat and that it is a pedestal so that they're not in an unsafe position on that seat. Scales should be placed in private area for weighing. Just recently, my husband went to his primary care, who he absolutely adores. But he had to stand on the scale in the hallway, and then the MA that weighed him told the MA who was sitting across the desk from her what his weight was. So she called it out. So that's not a very private way of doing it, because there were lots of people sitting around there. Sturdy armless chairs or high, firm sofas. Another thing to give real consideration to when you go back and you look at your own waiting room. Are you indeed making it so that people can be comfortable and not fear that something bad is going to happen when they sit down? And then this is one that I see all the time. The reading material in the waiting room. I don't know. It probably comes from donated magazines for all I know, but they're not focused on health habits. They're focused on the latest of being thin or diets. Or, so that's the kind of stuff that shouldn't be there because it's only going to make the patients feel bad about themselves if those are the magazines that are there. The other things to consider, make sure that your table, everything is can sustain higher body weights. If you're doing well woman visits, for GYN visits, be sure that you have vaginal speculums that are long enough and large enough. The exam table, 
This is another one. Exam tables rarely have a comfortable way, especially for patients who have severe obesity, to get up onto them easily. There's no handles there. Um, The step is often just a little bit too high for them to be able to do. And the table isn't sturdy. It'll start wiggling a little bit as they go to get on it. Other medical devices to consider, of course, having the right size blood pressure cuff is important. Um, One that rarely do people think about, in the bathroom, a specimen collector with a handle. It's really difficult if you have obesity that's beyond 35, 36 BMI to be able to get that. And then a tape measure that's long enough to do a waist measurement without moving it or without stretching it all the way to the end. And then scales that will measure patients greater than 400 pounds. My father's primary care scale only went to 275. And so they would ask him all the time, um, the next time he was the feed score, feed store to get weighed or to go over to the bariatric center someday and find out how much he weighed. Well, yeah, like he's going to do that. How embarrassing to be at the office and be told, well, don't bother to get on the scale. We can't weigh you here. So now that we've done those things, now that we've got a nice, safe environment for them, let's move on to what the conversation is. And all of the five A's that are out there for obesity do start with asking permission. Again, that's because of the stigma, because of the bias and blaming that these people have felt. But it's really more than asking permission. It's exploring their readiness. How much are they able to change at this point? What is their value system that you can put around this that will help them make decisions that are better for them? And then assess. We talked about the BMI and the waist circumference. Those are the two pieces. I will tell you a quick funny story. I got a referral for a young man who had a BMI of 30.2. So, you know, I'm expecting him to come in and, you know, have a little bit of excess adipose tissue around his middle, around the viscera. And he walked in and I was dumbfounded because his waist measurement was 28 inches. So he clearly did not have the chronic disease of obesity. So we put him on the bioimpedance scale and his body fat percentage was 13%. His muscle mass was very large. He was a weightlifter. I really, to this day, have never figured out why this young man got referred to me, but I pretty much told him things looked good and he should just continue on with what he was doing and go out there and have a good day. But when we're seeing the majority of our patients, remember 66 to 70% of Americans have overweight or have obesity, we need to start figuring out what are the drivers to that and do they have complications of the disease of obesity? Once we have that assessment done, then we can start to have the conversation with the patient about what are the health risks and what are the benefits of treatment and start helping them create their own long-term strategy and help them understand what treatment options are available to them. Once we've done that, then the idea is for them to agree on what it is they think they can do and what are their expectations. 
one of the things that came out of the action study is that patients wanted to lose 20% or more of their total body weight, and their healthcare provider agreed with that, when in reality, we know that that's very difficult to maintain once it happens, and you don't have to have that great target goal in order to start to see the benefits of treatment. And then we start in just the pillars of behavior changes. We look at eating plans, we look at activity, and we work with them with their behaviors to see what's creating roadblocks and how to get around it. And that's our assistance, identifying barriers to their optimal health and being sure we're creating good follow-up plans. So motivational interviewing is one that we've all heard of. We know that it's very valuable. I think some people say, oh, it's hard to do because it takes so much time. Yes, it is a collaborative conversation. But at the end of the day, it's really about discovering and activating the patient's values and motivations. I recently heard someone talk on this and they said, okay, so you put two chocolate chip cookies out and one is burnt around the edges and one is warm and soft and gooey. And you ask the patient which one they would prefer to eat. And, you know, most patients don't pick the one that's burned around the edges. And then you say to them, but before you make that choice, your daughter made the cookie for you that's burnt around the edges. And she's standing there with it in her hand to give to you. Now, which cookie do you pick? Yeah, most people pick the burnt edge cookie. So we have found a value there for that patient. Their value is family. So... That's a, a motivation that can be used to strengthen their commitment to change. Remember, this is about improving their health, not convincing people what we think is the best for them to do. And then, of course, there's the good old stages of change, which we've all known for years, especially around smoking cessation. But understanding where the patient is on this mechanism can be very helpful because then you can find ways to move them from one to the other. So a patient that's in pre-contemplation, our job is to get them into contemplation and get them moving forward. Preparation, they've already started to think about what it is they're going to do. Maybe they've bought a gym membership. And then action, they're all the way into it. But don't forget, people can move out of action back to preparation, especially if they've had weight gain. After losing it, that's where maintenance becomes so critical, and that's the part that's on us. We have to make sure that we're telling patients how important it is and what the markers are before they should come back in for this chronic disease. So, I've given you all this information, and I thought it was pretty good information, or I wouldn't have put it in the presentation, so to speak. But what does it really mean tomorrow in practice? So let's look at a couple of patients. Here we have Elena. Elena's at the practice today for a quick check and med refill for her diabetes. Her hemoglobin A1C has been steady at 7.3. Her body weight is up since three months ago by five pounds. So she now weighs 206 pounds and her BMI is 36. So we asked Elena permission. Elena, the chart shows your weight is up by five pounds. I know you mentioned last time that you were attending Weight Watchers. Can we look at how that is working for you? So here's Elena's thoughts. I'm so thankful my provider brought this up. And the research clearly shows that. Over two-thirds of patients want the provider to start 
open the conversation. I bet everyone in the office thinks I'm lazy. I am working so hard and I'm getting nowhere. Will she even believe me if I tell her what I've been doing? Maybe if I show her my online food diary. I almost never eat more than 1,300 calories and I work out four days a week. Is there really any help? But what Elena says to you is, oh, it's going great. I love going to the meetings. Then there's a bit of silence, and she says, but really, I don't seem to be successful. Is there anything that you can help me with? So what can you say next? Well, you've done the ask, and you've already done your assessment, and the patient is in preparation stage again. She was in action. She was going to meetings. But now she recognizes that a different plan needs to occur. So she's in preparation. But she's ready for advice, so we make a follow-up appointment for her that gives us the time to create the plan that she wants. This isn't any different than after we've diagnosed any other chronic disease. We don't try to fit in everything about that chronic disease while they're there for a well-woman visit or they're there for something else. We get them back in for follow-up visits. Have the patient bring a food diary and an activity diary. Because when you looked at her food tracker, she really wasn't tracking everything. Like there were many days lunch was missing and days that dinner was missing. So we need her to bring back a food diary that really has three to seven days of everything that she eats and drinks in there. And be sure you have a full assessment for any obesogenic medications. Remember, sometimes the medications we prescribe are partially at fault. And be sure that you've completed your assessment for complications and comorbidities. Are there things there that need treated as well or perhaps need referrals out? And be sure that your practice is ready. Do you have the educational materials you need? I've got some resources at the end that have some ready-made options that might help if you don't already have them. And I know that Robart has a, a nice library for you for it to be able to use when you are working with patients. Do you have the referral network, PT, registered dietitians, that understand the disease of obesity? That's the hard part. It's hard for me to find those people in my community. But now that I found them, I have a great referral network set up for my patients. And don't wait to do this, but start looking do you really have the right equipment that you need? Is your office a friendly place for these patients to come? So let's look at her follow-up visit. What happened after we asked her to do all that? Well, interestingly, she comes back after a week of tracking, and she's actually averaging 2,400 calories a day. But she did, after the two of you talked last time, Eat fewer fast foods. In fact, she was eating fast foods 15 to 20 times a week, and she's down to five. She's a dispatcher, so she sits most days, but she's got an average of 3,000 steps. But she's also started riding a stationary bike three days a week. And after starting all the changes that you see her for, her hemoglobin A1C is likely to drop with 5 to 10% of her weight loss. So that's the goal that she wants to set, is to get her hemoglobin A1C down. 
So that's going to be, as opposed to just a weight number, that's going to be one of her goals that she looks at as she moves forward in treatment. So in motivational interviewing, we find the points the patient's willing to change. And she said she's willing to change how many times she eats at fast food. So we'll go for small changes that are incremental. And we want to make sure that they're goals that are specific, measurable, and please achievable. You know, for Elena, I'm not going to tell her to start walking 10,000 steps a day. Probably not going to happen. But I'm going to give her a lot of kudos for riding the stationary bike. And I'm really giving her a lot of kudos for reducing her reliance on fast food. We want to get as much processed food out of there as we can. So for her to have already made that, and now we need to set it as a SMART goal. So how many times a week? She's down to five. Maybe that is the goal, and we won't go any lower. And then it needs to, of course, be relevant and timely. So the guiding principles for starting nutritionist therapy in the management of obesity is what we've done with Elena already. Minimize the intake of highly processed foods. So help her shift from that processed food in fast food to whole food consumption. Help her learn ways to plan ahead for that. Encourage the consumption of high-fiber, complex carbohydrates, not the simple sugars. And teach her how to read labels for serving sizes. And beware the marketing claims. My favorites are the patients who come in and ask me if raspberry ketones will assist them in their treatment. So she says, I'd really like to work on serving size. I think that might be part of the problem. Do you have anything that can help me with this? And as a matter of fact, we have a portion distortion handout. And that portion distortion, which comes from the NIH, is pretty easy because it does give like a fist, a baseball. I don't know. The CD may be too old for some of your patients to even know what it is. But you get the idea. Same with a checkbook. I don't know a lot of people that still carry around a checkbook. But we want to help her really start to recognize what is happening here. What are the food sizes? What is a portion, which is the amount you eat? And what is a serving, which is the measured amount and where you actually end up with what your calories are? So a handout for that is great. And it keeps your time tight in the clinic. But she also needs to learn how to do labels. So, again, you've got another access to a great resource. It's a wonderful one-page handout, Understanding and Using Nutritional Facts Labels. and helps them start to see macronutrients, but also helps them start to see the nutrients that are in there and what's in there that maybe they don't need. So I think this is another great handout that can be used at a follow-up visit. Okay, so let's go ahead and look at one more patient. Let's see what's happening today with Arthur. Arthur's going to be a little bit more challenging because Arthur comes in for his DOT. So he just wants to get his commercial driver's license examination done and updated. He's the patient in your practice already, and he has a long-standing history of hypertension, family history, mother, father, both brothers with CV disease and diabetes. 
And you can see that his blood pressure is not horrible, but it's not probably as controlled as we'd like for it to be. But his weight is 242 and his BMI is 33.75. The rest of the exam was within normal DOT parameters. So the conversation that you have with Arthur is that you just mentioned that his blood pressure is creeping back up. And, you know, three months ago, it was right there where you really wanted it to be. So we may have to add another medication, but his weight is up a little bit too. And maybe we can talk about that because treating that might also help treat the blood pressure. So we ask him what he thinks of that. Well, here's his thoughts. I knew it. Great. More medication for my BP. My wife is going to kill me. I don't have time for this. I'm really on the road in the truck so much trying to make ends meet. They don't get how hard that is these days. Great. Another person to tell me I'm fat. Like, I don't know that. So these are probably the thoughts that have gone through many patients' heads before. But what he really says out loud is, yes, I know I have to keep my blood pressure down in order to keep my driver's license. So I'll make that appointment before I leave. I can't afford to lose my job. But I don't have time to work out, and I don't have the money to eat at fancy restaurants while I'm on the road. So I think you can hear his defensiveness is probably a good word there. Um, he thinks he's doing the best he can do. So our next steps with him, now that we've asked and even assessed, we can see that he's in pre-contemplation. So what are we going to do for Arthur to get him to move forward? Be a safe harbor. Be positive with what treating obesity can do for his health. Remind him it isn't about weight management, but a disease. And have handouts ready for this. So you might give him the handout and say, hey, the next time you get to a rest stop and you're going to be there for an hour, just look this over so that when you come back into that blood pressure check, we can have a little more discussion perhaps. Then also look very closely at the medications that you prescribed. Perhaps he's on one of the obesogenic hypertensive meds. Does he have sleep apnea? Has he been assessed for some of the other comorbidities or complications of obesity? Tell him you understand that it's very difficult and you're not asking him to be on a computer, but could he just bring back on the back of napkins if necessary what he's eating on the road for a day or two? And then what he eats at home when he comes for his blood pressure visit. And then maybe on the follow-up, ask the staff to make that visit just a little bit longer. He's committed to keeping his blood pressure down. We have a value for him. Let's use it. Let's, let's take that value for him and use it to get him moving towards treatment for his obesity. So here are some of those resources I talked about. The Obesity Action Coalition has wonderful patient handouts that talk about what the disease is, and they have some handouts on how to use, um, how to choose eating plans. They have some on some of the other. The Obesity Society patient pages are also very good, and they are being um, reviewed by obesity specialists before they're being put into the journal, but they're available on their website too. The VA Move system, this is where majority of my handouts came from when I first started in my practice. And the reason I love this is because it starts with a questionnaire that the patient takes. 
And then that questionnaire tells me what are the patient's key points that need to be hit because they have over 200 handouts. So what are the handouts I need to start with? Yes, it's identified for veterans, but you can easily mark that word out and patients understand it. These are great, great handouts to use for your educational program, and they're all based on the behavior interventions from all of the guidelines. The Society for Endocrinology in the UK has a beautiful hormone handout. I use it all the time. And then ACE has an entire toolkit, and the toolkit is meant for patients as well as for healthcare providers. So it goes as far as to tell you what should an intake look like. What should the review of systems be? And they actually have forms that you can have patients fill out. For your own professional information, the Obesity Medicine Association's algorithm, it is kind of long and cumbersome, but right now it's in a PowerPoint so you can do a word search, and they're creating it into a book. But it is a full-service algorithm from nuts to bolts. Everything you want to know about treating obesity from the medical side of the house is in there, and they do have how to refer for surgery. The ACE resource for clinicians, you've got this one here. It gives you a whole slide library. They have a slide library on pathophysiology. One of their PowerPoints is just absolutely wonderful, and I actually use it to, to teach my patients. I want them to know this is a disease, and although they may not understand everything that's on the slide, they get the concept when I'm done. For NPs and PAs, there's a brand new primary care introductory certificate that we hope to repeat because th this enrollment has already occurred for the year-long program. But at AAMP and at AAPA, there are seven modules that can be done that give you an introductory certificate. And then the ACE Resource Center. So you've got lots of, of different resources that are available there. I think you've noticed I have a lot of pictures of real people in my PowerPoint. I would encourage any of you, if you're making your own handouts, if you're going to do a presentation anywhere, please, please go to one of these image galleries and get pictures of real people. Don't put a picture of a headless person. Don't put a picture of someone lounging on a couch, stuffing their face with something. Get pictures so that you are presenting non-biased information just in the visuals that you're using. And these are all free to use, and they are all available to use for anything you want. You have to just sign that, yes, you know, not that you're not going to sell the pictures. So here are my final thoughts for you today. The takeaways. America needs all providers to start treating the disease and its complications. Be sure your practice is a safe harbor. Bring the conversation, begin the conversation, and ensure the follow-ups are occurring. Please understand the bias that people with obesity have faced and are continuing to face every day when they walk out of their homes, some of them even in their homes. And start today with any one, any one of these things. Go back and clean out your waiting room magazines. But start today with something that will make your practice the one practice that people feel safe in. So thank you for your attention to that. There's a copyright notice, a statement of liability saying I did my very, very best to make sure this was all very accurate. 
all of my contact information is on here. Please, if you have any questions afterwards, feel free to contact me. I am always happy to talk about the disease of obesity and absolutely any aspect of it. And with one minute to spare, I have left 15 minutes for questions as directed. So I hope that I hope there are some questions. Yes, thank you so much, Dr. Golden. And uh, to our audience, feel free to continue sending in your questions through the Q&A function, and we'll get to as many as we can. Uh, first question I have for you, uh, Dr. Golden, first language. And uh, should the people first language be on a patient-by-patient basis, or should we take the approach with uh, every patient? It should be with every patient. Some of you might remember when we did this with diabetes. We talked about diabetic patients. We labeled the patient as the disease. What we're trying to do here is not label the patient as a disease, but say that the patient has a disease. So in every opportunity you have to say, I have a 42-year-old woman who has the chronic disease of obesity versus I have a 42-year-old obese woman. You've labeled that person. You've not labeled the disease. So switch that language over. Get that language. And I use that language with all of my patients. I do talk about excess weight, but I very quickly move them into being able to say the word obesity out loud for themselves and to be able to create their own speech about the disease of obesity for their families so that they can go back just like I've always done for my patients who have diabetes or who have hypertension. I make sure they understand the disease that they have. This is the same way. And person-first language helps do that. It helps set the stage for that. Related to speaking to your patients, what do you think is the best way to uh, speak or approach a patient about their weight when they don't want to or don't think they have a a weight problem? That's a great question. So obviously in my subspecialty practice, the obesity practice, the patients have been referred there because of the disease. But in my family practice, um, I, now not if they have a tip of 103 and strep throat. So, I mean, I'm not ridiculous about it, but At each visit, um, when we do their measurements, I have it printed out and I say, okay, so here's where we are. But I also want you to look at, you know, right now we know that there are 236 associated disorders with obesity. Many of those are full-on complications of obesity. If you look at the new ACE and the ADA guidelines, the very first thing they say to do to treat diabetes is to treat the obesity. So clearly, that's where I start for many of my patients. You know you have diabetes, but let me tell you what might be the underlying cause of that and that we need to treat the underlying cause, which is also a disease. So that's often how I approach it. The gentleman, Arthur, that I have in here is actually one of my patients. And Arthur has lost 70 pounds. When he came back for that follow-up visit, he actually did bring two days of food. Now, I had to laugh because he brought pictures. He did not bring it written down, but he did it. 
two days while he was on the road, he took pictures of everything he ate or drank. And, but it was because I brought up the fact that your hypertension is being worsened by the disease of obesity. I think that's an opening if your patient has any of the complications or comorbidities because they're, they're, they're already treating those complications. So I just tie this into one more way to treat that complication. And oftentimes that opens up the conversation better than anything. But the other thing that does in my primary care is that I really can't tell you how many times I have said to the patient, you know, we really need to talk about where your BMI is because with it plus your waist circumference, you now have this other disease and we need to talk about how we're going to treat that. I can't tell you how many of them start crying because nobody's ever been willing to talk to them about it. They had no idea that there was really treat medical healthcare treatment available. They thought it was all about willpower. I just eat too much. I don't exercise enough. If I could push myself away from the table, and they've actually been told that by healthcare providers before. So to have someone who's willing to have the conversation from that space, I, I rarely, well, I've never had a patient in my family practice. And I've even done it in the urgent care that I work in. Um, when I'm doing um, well visits, CDLs, sports physicals, um, I, I mean, I do have a couple of friends that tell me there is not a topic in healthcare that I can't figure out some way to make it about obesity, but I don't think I'm that bad. I don't think strep throat is caused by it, but it's probably the only one. But uh, So, yeah, I'll keep my day job. I'm not much of a comedian, but... Um, but I really do think that we can do that, especially with patients who already trust us because they're in our primary care practices. You you had met, mentioned during the course of that answer that you, you, know, you have patients that are, are willing to have the conversation. Um, conversely, can you can you give the best way, in your opinion, to deal with uh, negative patients or patients that have unrealistic goals? So Arthur was a negative patient. So he was a real patient. He, I tried to put his tone into his words because he was, he was actually a little angry with me for bringing it up. Um, but as I said, you know, when he came back for his blood pressure visit, um, and I talked about how his, his obesity was probably impacting his blood pressure and he hates taking pills. So, Instead of adding another pill, how about if we treat the obesity? Um, he looked at me and went, oh, okay, well, what do you mean treat it? You're just going to tell me to eat less and exercise more. I said, actually, no, that's not at all what I'm going to do. Um, and so I think making it clear to them that that's not what you're going to say to them is really important. Um, and the second part of your question was, because the first part was um, patients who are angry. The second part was uh, patients that have realistic goals with their weight loss. Oh, that's, yeah, that's a perfect one. So um, probably all of us have had that patient who walked in and wanted to lose 50 pounds before their high school reunion in three months. Um, and, again, I, I'm sounding like a broken record, but I really go back to the science of the disease. Um you know, if I've been lucky enough that they have one of the complications, like 
diabetes or hypertension, I talk about how long it kind of took to get things under control. And that's exactly what we're going to be doing with this. But I also talk about how 5 to 10% total body loss and body weight loss, what can happen, what can change for them. And so I talk to them about, let's make a short-term goal, and then we'll look at long-term goals next. So I kind of push back off the table their unrealistic expectations. And I find something that is um, a more realistic expectation, but is short-term. Now, that said, I have lots of patients that go well beyond 10%, but we don't ever set the original goal greater than that. When we get to that goal, then we discuss, okay, are you where you want to be? And we go to maintenance because we've had an effect on your complications and you've met some of your quality of life indicators you have then let's talk about maintenance. And if they're like, no, I think I, I think I want to do better. I think, you know, I'd like to see, can I decrease my medication burden a little bit more? And I really want to be more active with my children. And I, I'm still, still not where I want to be with that part of my quality of life. Then we keep going. Uh, uh, speaking of goals, are there ways to reward your patients if they reach small milestones or goals? I love that. I, I, I tell patients for every decade. So when the scale goes to a new, like, so if they start at 189 and they get to 179, they have to have a reward ready that they're giving to themselves. And I've laughed because I have one patient that has congratulations cards in her desk drawer that she got at the dollar store. And she has them stacked on her desk. And for her, it's a visual reminder of how well she's done. So it doesn't have to be something big. Um, but we talk about, you know, what's something you've been wanting to do for yourself? And, you know, I, I try to keep that pretty small, too. I don't, you know, I mean, I, one person wants to have a massage. Okay, they can afford it. That's great. Um, and I started my practice with a tally board of what the total practice had lost. And one patient felt like they weren't contributing enough to the tally, and I got rid of it. That's all it took for me was one patient. And I thought, okay, this wasn't what I meant for it to be. I meant for it to be, look, you know, other people are on this journey with you. You may not know who they are, but they're on this journey with you. And so I, because I thought that was another way to, to kind of build up resilience. Um, and then, but I think that having them have something ready as their own reward given to themselves is really critical. Thank you, Dr. Golden, and thank you to the audience for joining us for today's Robard Corporation podcast, talking to patients about obesity, opening that conversation. As a reminder, you can subscribe to all of Robard's podcasts for free.
By searching the phrase Robard Corporation on Apple's iTunes, Google Play Music, and by visiting SoundCloud at www.soundcloud.com. And if you would like more information about treating obesity in your office or clinic, visit www.robard.com. Thank you.